Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. For those of you who haven't met me yet, my name is Travis. I would love to meet you if you haven't met me yet. Um, but I, I uh, am so grateful to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Before we start into that, though, I just wanted to uh, mention the fact that today is the 21st anniversary of 9-11. Um, can it be that that many years have passed? Um, did I do the math right, 21st, right? Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking today about um, all the people we have in our, in our society, first responders and medical uh, crews and all the people, you know, armed services who um, have put themselves in between us and danger or run into danger when we are in danger. And I, I do think it just makes sense that uh, all these people who have done that, we would just, you know, I'm not going to make you stand up because some of you may not <laughs> want to stand up uh, and be noticed, but um, I just want to take a moment right now to say from this church family to you from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for all that you do and all that you have been willing to sacrifice so that we can be okay. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, you can. Um, this morning I want you to open up to 1 Peter chapter two. Uh, our passage starts at verse 13, but we're gonna back up just real quick to verse nine and I want you to go ahead and, and go there now. 1 Peter chapter two, verse nine. Um, have you, I ask this question as if I don't know the answer, but I'll do it anyways. Have you ever been in a situation where no matter what you do, no matter what you try, you don't have the power to change the situation? You are powerless to change uh, the condition that you find yourself in. There are people all over the world who live this every day. Uh, we here in America, um, in some ways less, but it, it, even when you have a, a significant amount of freedom, and in a significant amount of resources and wealth, there are just some things you cannot buy your way out of. There are some situations that, that you just cannot change because it's not up to you. It's other people's decisions. It's other people's choices. It's other people's power that is exerted over you. And you find yourself in a position that you cannot change the position and you don't have power in that situation. Can you think of a time in your life where that was true? Think about that time. Imagine that time and what it feels like in your mind. And then I want to read this to you, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, church, disciples of Jesus, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me ask you a question. Is that still true when you are powerless? Is it still true when you can't change the situation you're in? That you are called to be a priest in that situation? Is it still true that God can and will work through you and in you in that kind of situation? Disciples of Jesus are called to be a priesthood representing the kingship and mercy of God to the world. And so we have to answer that question. Is it possible to accomplish our calling as priests even when we're in situations that we cannot change, where we have no power? Not only do I believe it's possible, friends, but perhaps 
These powerless situations are the place where disciples of Jesus have the most influence. Perhaps being a disciple of Jesus, Christianity following Christ, was designed to thrive in situations where we have no power. Just consider that. Because starting here in verse 13 where our passage picks up, Peter's going to address three very common power dynamics that readers experienced, his original readers experienced every day. And he's gonna, he's gonna address these power dynamics in order to instruct them how to live. And the three power dynamics are these, between government and its citizens, between masters and their slaves, and between husbands and their wives. You see, in that day, those were all situations of power dynamics that were very, very typical. Now, there's a difference between how Peter addresses these power dynamics and how the philosophers of the day did. The philosophers of the day wrote a lot on these issues of social structure. But the philosophers of the day, if you notice how they wrote, but more importantly, who they wrote to, they would write to the people in power. They would write to governors, magistrates, they would write to slave owners, and they would write to men who had full sway and power over their family because that was the way the world was. They would write to the people in power. But if you've read ahead a little bit in this passage we're gonna, we're gonna study, Peter's not talking to the person in power. Who's Peter talking to? He's talking to the person who is having to live under the power of others. It's a little revolutionary, but these are things we can read scripture and just go right over. Isn't it amazing that Peter knew his audience? He knew he was speaking, for the most part, to people who would not have the power, authority, or significance in culture to change the situation they were in. And so, because we miss these kinds of realities of the, the culture Peter was writing into, we can read this scripture from our own modern take and judge what Peter is saying from our own modern situation and the things we experience here in America. And so a modern question is this, and I feel this tension. Why does Peter instruct these powerless people on how to live under the injustices they experience? rather than telling them to throw off the shackles of the injustice and rather than critiquing the injustice itself? Why is Peter saying, here's how you live under the injustice that you're living under? Why doesn't he just say, this is wrong? We must change this. Does anyone feel that tension? Sometimes when you read scripture, do you ever, it's okay to say yes to this. When you read scripture, do you ever read something you're like, I wouldn't have said it like that. You're not gonna get hit with a bolt of lightning. You're being, it's, it's, be honest. Sometimes I read scripture and I'm like, man, I would say this differently. It's a good thing I'm not the writer of scripture because God is so wise and he knows what he's doing. So even when we come to a passage like today where there's like, um, you know, three completely uh, non-difficult issues like government, slavery, and gender roles, we can trust God's wisdom even if the way it's written doesn't immediately speak to our modern mind. And this is what we have to do today. 
There's a reason that Peter isn't speaking to the people in charge and saying, change this. There's a reason he isn't just decrying the horrible nature of abusive governments and the blight that slavery is on humanity and always has been. And so many people have been used and abused on earth for, for just millennia. And women who throughout the centuries have been in this oppressive, patriarchal, under the thumb of men who have power. And if you think me saying that is woke, read a history book. It's not woke, it's true. Women have been, by and large, mistreated for the vast amount of history, and it's wrong. So why isn't Peter just saying, throw off the shackles? I'll tell you why. Because Peter is a pastor, and he could wax eloquent all he wanted on the issues that were wrong, but he's got people coming to him saying, but this is the situation I'm in. How do I honor Jesus in this situation? If his answer was, well, it's a wrong situation. Thank you, I agree, but how do I navigate this? He's a pastor. And so he's telling his people who are stuck and powerless in situations, here's how you honor King Jesus, even though there are other people lording their authority over you. It's exactly the answer they needed, whether you like it or not. Their most immediate question was, how do I navigate a situation I can't change and be a true, honest, genuine disciple of Jesus? And so his focus in this passage is not to transform the system, it's to transform the people living under the system. And don't get me wrong, the Bible does speak to all these issues very clearly. It speaks against people who use their power wrongly. It speaks against the horrors of slavery and the way people have been treated. But the main idea of this passage today is this. How do the people of God, priests in Jesus' kingdom, follow Jesus in circumstances we can't change and where we don't have any power? And how do we do this in a way that those who currently reject Jesus as their king would see how we live and surrender to Jesus as their king as well? That's why we're here. And so perhaps we will discover that in this life, it is when we are denied access to the human version of power, because you know that there's a difference between the human way of power and the heavenly way of power, don't you? Humans use force and coercion and lies and evil. The way of heaven is much different. But perhaps it is when we are denied access to the human version of power that we have most access to heaven's version of power. Does that make the injustice okay? No. Does it justify injustice? No, it just is. Is this world unjust? 100%? No. But there's a ton of injustice. Even things we're making strides on are still unjust. Will injustice end before King Jesus returns? No, it will not. But there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when injustice will be no more, and we eagerly await that. But how do we live in the meantime? 
Peter has some beautiful words from God for us. Start at verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject or submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Now stop there. If, if you've been in church for a long time, been a Christian for even a little while, I don't know if that part is gonna be a huge struggle for you in the sense of like, yeah, that's the way it ought to be. It may be a struggle to do it, but you know, understanding I'm supposed to obey God and I, and I need to be subject to God, submit to God, that's probably something that we could all say, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. That's the part we don't struggle with as much, believing it. I'm supposed to write a blank check to God. I'm supposed to say, God, you are wise, you are loving, you will never steer me wrong, you've never failed me yet. So I'm gonna write a blank check to you this morning so that whatever you ask me today, I say yes before I even know what you're asking because I can trust you. That is the way it's supposed to be. And we don't tend to, br uh, we do, but not as much. Bristle at that. But it's when we start getting specific about what we're subjecting to that we struggle. This is where you start getting triggered. Keep reading. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Ah. Anyone else in here struggle with that? Don't lie. Anyone else in here struggle? Every, every human institution? Are, are you kidding me? And he's talking, I think, mainly about governments here. Are you joking? I'm supposed to be subject to every human government wherever I live whether it be to the emperor as supreme. You guys remember what the Roman emperors were like, right? They were not good guys, and they did horrible things. Or to governors as sent by the emperor, him, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God, what? Subjecting yourself, submitting yourself, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, in this day, it was very popular to call Christians anti-law. These people say they're free in this Jesus guy. They're free in Christ. They are under God's law, not man's law. And so they're a bunch of lawbreakers. And, and Peter's saying, that is not who we are. We are not rabble rousers. We obey Jesus. And because we obey Jesus, if he says to obey the government, we do it. He says, put to silence those arrogant, ignorant comments that people will make about Christians being rabble rousers and lawbreakers. For whose sake? The Lord's sake. And then it's like he completely flips around. And in verse 16, he says, after he said, be subject, he says, live as people who are free. Well, that's weird. He just told me to be subject. And then he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So I can be living in subjection to the authorities that are over me, but I can do it as a free person by my own will and choice because God asks it of me. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, worship God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. And he moves on to talking about slaves Obeying their masters, this is so hard. Listen to this. Servants or slaves, same word. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Is anyone in here just tense right now? 
Please tell me I'm not the only one. You guys are way too quiet. Okay. Four, verse 19. This, being subject with respect, even to those who are unjust, is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, mindful of that you are following God as your king, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Can you think of another being in, in the history of humanity that suffered completely unjustly? Thank you, Jesus. For what credit it, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God that you would obey God, suffer for it, and endure it. God sees your sacrifice. He sees your suffering. He's not unaware, and he has a reward for you. Now here, at this point, Peter drops in really the whole core of this passage, the, the, the kind of like punchline of the whole thing. And sometimes writers back then did that. They would put it in the middle rather than at the end. We tend to like the punchline at the end, but he drops right in the middle to be the hub that everything connects to. I'm moving my hands a lot. I'm sorry. Um, so we're, we're going we're gonna to take that piece and we're going to get to it at the end because I think that's where we want to land. But let's skip right now to, to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Get ready to get majorly triggered again. Um, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so he has in mind not as much Christian husbands, but non-Christian husbands who don't obey the word of God, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's eyes is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. But he doesn't stop there. Likewise, likewise, likewise what? What has he been telling citizens and slaves and wives to do? To subject themselves. Likewise, husbands, subject yourselves. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Don't worry, I'll get to that. It has a really good explanation. Don't throw tomatoes at me right now. I'm just the messenger. <laughs> Showing honor to the woman. I actually think you're gonna love what that means. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Equal heirs with men in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's interesting. We'll get to that too. You ladies can't wait for that, right? Let's talk about each specific sphere that Peter is addressing here. First and foremost, citizens and rulers. The main reason Peter instructs us to submit to human governments is not because human governments are inherently good. Can you ever point to a human government in the history of the world that was inherently good? No. 
Power is so corrupting. So we don't submit to human governments because they're inherently good. They aren't. But because every human government rules over a place where the gospel must be lived and preached. It's a matter of fact. If I'm called here to minister the gospel in California, it means that I must submit to the ways and the government is ruling in California. I'm here. I'm under the laws. And if I'm going to do my mission as Jesus' servant, I have to be here. This is why Jesus subjected himself to living under a human government. Do you realize that Jesus left heaven, came here, and, and inserted himself under the thumb of the Roman Empire? And he had to live his whole life underneath that unjust, abusive power structure. Jesus did this. Are we better than Jesus? I hope your answer is no. You are too quiet. I told you earlier. <laughs> Governments exist. And people live underneath the rule of those governments, and we are called to be priests to those people who live under the rule of those governments. And so we have to be there too. But then he says this, live as people who are free. Isn't that interesting? Subject yourself, but live as free. Here's what he's saying, that we as disciples of Jesus, we are choosing of our own volition to honor God by obeying human authority. God has demanded it, I will do it. To the extent that I can. This is a very practical thing. Let me ask you this. Someone, other, not United States, name a country on earth. Yell it out. Ethiopia. Ethiopia. I heard Ethiopia. Are there people uh, there in Ethiopia who need Jesus? Yes. Do they have a government and laws there? Then for the sake of Jesus' mission... Is it worth it for disciples of Jesus to be in those places living under the powers that be for the sake of the gospel? Someone last service said Afghanistan. Is it worth it for Christians to stay and live in that country as horrible as it is for Christians right now for the sake of Jesus' mission moving forward? Yes then they have to live in the place that is subject to that government. And so we live under those power structures, living at peace so that we can continue our mission. Now, I do need to give this caveat. Obedience to human government ends where sin begins. Does that make sense? Obedience to human government ends where sin begins. I cannot honor God by sinning. And if the government is saying you must sin to obey the laws, I must reject that, that governance and say I can't obey you on that. Here are the things I can obey you on. Here are the things I cannot. If the government, and it will, one day say you cannot share your faith about Jesus with other people. It's fine if you have it, but you can't share it with others. Ought we to obey that? that dictate. No, because Jesus, our King, said, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. We cannot obey the government if it means sin. Remember, this is for the Lord's sake, and we cannot sin for the Lord's sake. Now, does this mean that there's no place for peaceful protest? I don't think so. I think that peaceful protest is something that Christians may be led by the Holy Spirit to challenge injustice. I'm so grateful for Dr. King and the civil rights movement. But look at how he led the people. He said, we are not gonna take up the same weapons that those who are oppressing us are taking up. We will not use violence. If you're gonna go to this protest, you're going to have to accept that you might get beaten and you do not strike back. So yes, is there a place for, for, for protesting injustice? Yeah, there have been times in our history where Christians should have stood up when they didn't. So when there is great injustice, I believe that Christians may be led by the Holy Spirit to challenge it. And when we do, the way we do it must be modeled after Jesus. We can't fight injustice of the world using the weapons of the world. We're just perpetuating injustice. So one thought to consider. What things are worthy of Christians protesting? Every little thing you're annoyed with by the government? You'd be protesting every day. What are the things that are worthy of protest for a Christian? It's not everything, but it's not nothing. And the answer to that question is, we have to pray and listen to God and do what he tells us to do. Just because you have a right under the Constitution doesn't mean that you have a right to disobey God. When Jesus saved you, he bought you, he owns you, he paid the price for your life, and so your rights are only executed at his command. And when we think about protesting government and things that the government is doing, knowing that we must do it like Jesus did it, we need to ask the question, for whom am I using my power to protest? Because did God give you power to use for yourself or for the sake of others? The way of Jesus is not power over, it's power for. I have influence and power not for myself to have power over people to give myself benefits. I have power and influence, whatever little I have, to exert for the sake of others. That is the way of Jesus. Christians are called not to use their power over others, but for others. Church, there will be a day when to obey Jesus and fulfill his mission to make disciples, we must disobey the government. This is true in many places in the world right now. And we need to be wise and discerning about this thing of protest and kicking up dust to not play the rebellion card prematurely. Here's why. Because when it comes down to the day when you're gonna have to disobey to obey Jesus, you will have no credibility in your resistance. People will say, he's been like that for years. He's always picking a fight. Every little thing he doesn't like, he's gonna protest. Or she always has had a chip on her shoulder. Don't listen to her. I realize that that might trigger your American sensibilities. And I get that. 
but I want to remind you that your first citizenship and loyalty belong to Jesus. And we don't get to pick a fight about every little thing that annoys us or bothers us. We use our influence and our voice at his behest, not our own. Are you leveraging your time, energy, and voice first and foremost for the causes he cares most deeply about? Let's move on to the issue of slaves and masters. This is a hard, hard one for me. Because if you read any history and see the history of slavery and racial abuse in our country, this is... And it's hard. To imagine Peter speaking to an African slave who couldn't get out of his situation or her situation, who escaping would mean either a horrible beating or death. And because that person can't escape their situation and they can't change it, Peter's saying to them, I know it's cruel what's being done to you, but you can still honor Jesus in it. Peter, as a good pastor, addresses slaves' most immediate circumstance, how to obey Jesus in the powerless environment they were in. Slavery in the first century like, existed on kind of a, a wide spectrum. There were slaves that were uh, kidnapped and st sold into slavery, and there were slaves that on the bottom end of things had really menial and cruel, sometimes disgusting tasks they had to do. And then there were slaves, some of them actually, who sold themselves into slavery. It was a way of having a job for some people. Um, um, indentured servitude, I think, is kind of one thing you would call it. And, and some slaves on the higher end of things uh, would even manage their, their master's whole household or their business even. Some slaves were in it for life. Some slaves had the ability to... Um, earn money and buy themselves out of slavery, buy themselves back, it's called manumission. So there's this wide reality that slavery lived in. But the common thing is that every slave was under the near complete control of their master. They were literally owned as far as the way of man, not in God's eyes, but they were owned. And once in slavery, it was very difficult to get out, though many did, but it took a long time. This was never quick and never cheap, and therefore it was never immediate. And so Peter applies much of what he said in, in, in the thing about government and, and citizens to slaves. So I won't repeat those thoughts here, but specifically here, I wanna draw down on some of the things Peter specifically says to slaves. Peter teaches that if you endure suffering because of your intention to obey God, there is a reward in it. You don't have a choice whether you're in that slavery. You don't, can't change the nature of your slavery, but you can obey God in it, and you can honor God in it, and when you do, God sees you, and God rewards you. And he warns this, this is so important for those of us who find ourselves in situations we cannot change and we have no power to change. He warns us against letting the injustice you experience from someone else to lure you into a compromised character and thus perpetuating sin. He says, in other words, don't become like your unjust master. Don't let his sin make you like him. 
Don't be like him in the way you respond to him. His sinful action does not validate your sinful reaction. This doesn't excuse the injustice. It doesn't wipe away the sin of the one who's abusing, but it reveals and praises the character of a person who would rather endure evil than do evil. And that's a question I wanna ask you. Would you rather do evil or endure evil? If you had the choice and to keep yourself from enduring evil, you had to do something evil, would you do it? Or in your heart, would you say, I would rather endure evil, I would rather have to trust God through it than to take part in it? That's the heart of a disciple. And I do wanna assure you, the whole testimony of scripture is that God's eye and favor are on those who suffer injustice for his namesake. Read the prophets, read the Psalms, and the New Testament is chock full of God's care for those who are suffering injustice in righteousness. Let's move on to the next one, wives and husbands. Uh, this is, uh, again, trigger warning. But it's, what God does here is, is amazing and beautiful. When Peter talks to wives and husbands, Peter draws a connection to the preceding passage by saying, likewise. So he's saying, like citizens under their government, and like man-made systems of government, and like slaves under their man-made system of slavery. In the same way, wives, in the parts of marriage that have become man-made, there is a call for you to honor God in it and through it. Now, here's the thing. Marriage is from God. That's what we believe. The Bible says that marriage is a beautiful, wonderful thing from God. But it also tends to be highly, if not completely, architected by the culture it is in. And it mirrors the brokenness of the culture. So though God created it, it has been deformed by all the cultures of the world, hasn't it? At least in some way, shape, or form. And it mirrors the brokenness of the culture. So sadly, throughout the ages, part of most cultures has been, have been the demeaning and dominating of women. Sadly, wives for most of history have been subjected to humanity's distorted version of marriage and have been vulnerable to the injustice perpetuated by men who have authority but use it unjustly. The culture assigns the man authority just because he's a man and then he uses it unjustly and the woman suffered. This is the way of the world for centuries, millennia in most places. Again, read a history book. In the first century, where Peter's writing here, wives had very little rights. Here's how society worked in that days. If you read some of the philosophers of that day and like the social theorists, they would say this, Caesar, the emperor, sends out governors and he rules the governors and the governors rule the local magistrates who are more local. The local magistrates rule the husband, the husband rules the wife and family. And so the way the society was architected was that Caesar's reign reached all the way down to the family through governor, local magistrate, husband to the whole family, masters and slaves even. 
That's the way society was architected in Peter's day. And to add to this, in this time period, a very wrong-headed belief was that the male's authority was given to him because he was naturally superior. I almost threw up in my mouth a couple times reading quotes from a guy named Aristides. He instructs husbands to approach their wives, quote, as a better person would treat an inferior one. Bah! Oh! So aggravating. But Peter, knowing that this was thinking that was in the air, speaks directly to the women. He says, woman, loved by God, made in his image, speaking to you. I acknowledge your agency. I acknowledge your identity. And as priests in God's family, your choice to follow Jesus. It's your choice how you navigate this. And I'm calling you to navigate it by listening to Jesus. Peter's message to wives in a situation they couldn't, could not change, but they could affect is this. Live in a respectful way as a priest in your home. Your husband, specifically the ones who don't know Jesus, need to experience the love of God so that if they do not follow Jesus, they might become his disciple by loving sacrifice of their believing wife. This submission is to your own husband, not to every man. He says, your own husband, but it's not because he's superior. It's because if you can win him to Christ, do it. Anyone still feel uncomfortable? I do. But this is what Peter is saying. This is not about outward appearances, he says, but it's about a transformed inner character. Peter says to these women that God loves, you do this by choice as a free person, remember? As a priest in your household. Your household needs a priest. Your husband doesn't know God. You're the priest not out of appearances or out of fear, but for the sake of accomplishing the mission of your king and that he's given you. Your husband needs to see Jesus and you are Jesus's image bearer. But then he doesn't leave it there with the wife. He then instructs the husband, quickly turns the tables and now for the first time in this section, he speaks to the one who does have power, the husband, because in that society, the husband ruled over the home. And so this is a word not just to husbands, I think, but to anyone who has power or authority. Listen to what God says. This could be man or woman having any kind of authority over people, any kind of power over people, but I'll speak specifically towards husbands. Scripture in, in verse seven says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Don't worry, I'll talk about that. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter once again says, in the same way. In the same way, what? Subject yourselves. Husbands, submit. Subject yourselves. That's the main verb in this whole passage, submit. How does a husband who has power in this first century scenario submit? In the same way, he submits. Same as wives, same as slaves, same as citizens. In the same way, subject yourself, submit. Peter is speaking to the person in power and telling him that he has the same calling to be subject. And it reminds me of Ephesians 5.21. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about wives and husbands living together. 
But before he says anything about wives and husbands, he says this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if you have the thought that wives submit to husbands, but husbands don't submit to wives, read your Bible. Submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21 says before it talks about marriage, it is not only the wives that are called to submit, but also husbands. And there is on us Christians a countercultural call for all Christians everywhere to reflect Christ rather than their culture. So how is the husband, the person in this first century scenario and in power, how is he submissive? By living a life of understanding and showing honor to his wife in a culture that did not require him to. The culture did not require a husband to show honor to his wife, but Peter is saying, you must. Now let's talk about this whole weaker vessel thing. This is often interpreted uh, as Peter perpetuating like a patriarchal society's belief that women were inferior. If that's how you read this, Read it again and read it in context. I strenuously, strenuously disagree with that interpretation of this point. And I beg the context to do so. Peter says something about the wife being the weaker vessel and then immediately says that she is a co-heir with her husband in Christ. Peter wouldn't suggest that women are inferior and then turn right around and say, but they're co-heirs on an equal standing with you in Christ. That doesn't make any sense. No, rather, by saying that wives were weaker, Peter is pointing out the weak position women were subjected to in that culture. He's saying, in this culture, it's very observable that the wife is in a weaker setting a weaker placement because society has subjected her there. So being there in that weaker place, subjected by society, husband, you have a responsibility because for some reason you've been given authority and power by our culture. One commentator says that a good translation from the Greek would be the more vulnerable member of the family. It's Craig Keener. I, I encourage you to read his works on, on 1 Peter. And so, a Christian husband, knowing that culture would deny his wife a place of honor, is commanded to use the authority that culture automatically assigned to him because he was a male to benefit her and treat her as his equal. Peter insists that wives are heirs right along with their husbands in God's economy. And notice that the action of honor, he says, honor her, is the same word Peter employs concerning how a citizen ought to treat the emperor. So what Peter is saying is, husband, treat your wife in this broken, demeaning age with the honor, dignity, and value that will be made obvious in the age to come. Do you really think when Jesus returns that anyone's gonna think men and women are not on the same standing? that women are inferior to men. No way. So treat her now with what is true and what will be shown to be true when Jesus returns. Treat her with that honor and dignity. If society doesn't give it to her, then you use your authority, your 
societally given power to raise her up to a place of equality with you. That's what this is saying in my belief. Now, I want to give a little quick comment on male leadership in the home because some of you are thinking about that right now. And you're thinking about Ephesians 5 where it talks about wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wife. Remember, first of all, that it says submit to each other. But let me say this as well. Men are commanded to love their wives how? Say it out. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's think about that for a minute. You can talk about male leadership in the home all you want, and we can have, I'm not gonna get into all that right now because that would be another sermon. I don't have to talk about that, but no, really, I'm not avoiding it. I don't have time. I literally don't have time. But let's say whatever you take scripture to mean about male leadership in the home, don't just talk about male leadership. Define leadership. Because Paul does. How are we men to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus, right before he instituted communion, the Lord's Supper, knelt down and took literally the task of the lowest slave and wiped the muck off of his disciples' feet, cleaned them, and wiped it onto a towel that he was wearing. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And God said no. And so for the sake of the church, Jesus laid down what he wanted to do and did what God asked him to do for the sake of his bride, the church. And Jesus hung on a cross and paid for our sins. He died for us. So husbands, if you want to lead in your home, do it like Jesus. But it's not to get perks, and it's not to have power, and it's not to tell everyone what to do. A leader defined by scripture is a servant. That's what Christian leadership is. If your leadership is self-serving, prideful, superior or domineering, you are in disobedience to your king and he will not listen to you. Do you realize what he says about if you don't treat your wife in this way? Did you see the little threat there at the end? He says, and if you don't, there's a consequences. It's hindered prayers. Here's basically what Peter is saying. If you deny your wife access to your authority, I will deny you access to mine. If you will not listen to the petitions of your wife, I will not listen to yours. God has a tendency to not listen to those who perpetuate injustice. So if you, as a husband or any person in power, are domineering, selfish, prideful, and arrogant in how you use your authority, God will not listen to you. He will not extend his blessing to someone who uses it to curse others. I have been so convicted by this this week because I've got some hypocrisy in my life in some relationships that I have in how I've used my authority. 
so God has me in a place of repentance. Power is not to be used over people, it's for people. So now let's jump back in real quick to 221 and read this hub that ties everything together to answer the question, why should a disciple of Jesus be willing to endure an unjust, powerless situation graciously? Here in verse 21, Peter is quoting excerpts from Isaiah 53. It's a messianic prophecy about Jesus. And it says this, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Everything I'm saying is exactly what Jesus did is what Peter's saying. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, God the Father. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, Jesus' wounds, we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, who had done no sin, church, chose to endure suffering, mistreatment, and injustice. He chose to endure it all the way to death so that the very people who had caused the injustice he endured could be saved, you and I. So the question we have to grapple with is this. Is it too much for my king to ask me to join him in suffering a powerless situation for the sake of his mission to save lost people. Is that too much of Jesus to ask from, from me? Is anything too much for Jesus to ask from me? Now, I wanna be very, very clear. Please listen. I am not at all advocating that anyone who is being abused stay quiet and stay in a dangerous situation. I am not saying that. Does everyone hear me? Amen. This question does not mean that people who are being abused or violated should just endure it. By the grace of God in our current culture, he has provided ways for the abused to seek help and the abuser to be brought to justice and for the abuser to experience the painful grace of being stopped from further sin and condemnation. It is a grace for an abuser to be stopped. So no abused person should ever excuse or enable the abuse. Get out and get help. We will help you. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply observing that as human beings, we're gonna find ourselves in so many situations we cannot change and where we're powerless. So what is our move in that situation? Do we perpetuate the injustice and sin done to us by doing the same things back? How do we respond in these situations? Here's what Jesus did, Peter listed out. He suffered even though he had done nothing wrong. He did not retaliate, no revenge. He did not threaten. Instead, he trusted God the Father to vindicate him, and he absorbed the sin of others rather than reflecting it back on them. His response sought healing and restoration. We can't die for other people's sins and we can't absorb their sins in a sacrificial way like Jesus did, paying for their sins. But perhaps when we are sinned against, we emulate Jesus by not retaliating. Our choice to emulate Christ and suffer sacrificially and without revenge reflects Jesus, which is ultimately the reason we endure suffering, to reflect Jesus, 
not for the sake of suffering as if suffering is good in itself, but for the sake of others being shown mercy like us. We have to make our choice for how we will respond before this happens. We have to front load in our hearts and minds when I become powerless, when I'm in a situation I can't change, how will I respond like the rest of the world or like Jesus if we don't front load this now before we're in that situation, if you're not already in that situation? We will panic and have a panicked response and it will most likely be like the world. So here are the questions I'd invite you to meditate on and talk with the Father about as we spend some time with him this week. One, how did Jesus steward being subjected to the power of others? How did Jesus walk through being under others' powers? Whatever way that is, we should do the same. The second question, how did Jesus steward his suffering? How did Jesus walk under suffering? We are called to do the same. Three, how did Jesus steward his own power? How did Jesus use his own power? We should do the same. This is the high calling we have, my friends. Disciples of Jesus honor the way and character of Jesus in circumstances that dishonor the way and character of Jesus. Like I mentioned before, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, kneeled down and he washed his disciples' feet. And then after that, during their meal, he took bread and wine and he said, remember me through this. Would you take out the communion cup that you were given on the way? And if you didn't, there's some in the back on the tables and you can even run up here. I've got some extras here in this basket if you didn't get one. Open that bread. Would you close your eyes and would you remember the sacrifice of Jesus where he laid down his body and endured suffering unjustly, but because your life was on the line, he did it. Would you thank him for his sacrifice and not only for what it accomplished for you for salvation, but for the steps he walked ahead of us to show us how we should follow in his footsteps. Let's eat this bread in remembrance of King Jesus. Would you prepare to drink the cup? Jesus said of the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood, not the blood of sheep and rams and goats, but the blood of the perfect, holy son of God. And this covenant is based not on what we do, but him doing all of the work for us and we by faith receive his grace. This is how he served us, by paying for it all on the cross. Let's drink this cup together in remembrance of Jesus. Church, you who believe in Christ are priests in his kingdom. And eating this bread and drinking this cup is a signifier of your connection to Jesus and your being enlisted as a priest in his calling. And it's a commissioning to go out this week and not just connect with God on Sunday, but to be close to him and obey him all through the week 
as priests in his kingdom, filled with the Holy Spirit, saying yes to him, saying no to sin, so that we can accomplish the mission he's given, no matter what it costs us. Amen. So Father, would you bless them and keep them? Would you cause your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them and give them peace? And may they walk with you every minute, obeying, trusting your love for them, following your lead as you send them out into the mission field this week. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Everyone said, amen. amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.